morning, let's open up our Bibles, if you would, to chapter 11 of Hebrews. And um, we're going to read just two verses this morning, because if you were here last Sunday, I made you read through a whole chapter. Just two, two verses today. And as we do that, just a reminder, uh, last week we started in this new message series that we've called Living by Faith. And the idea behind this series is really twofold. Um, first, if you and I are to follow the way of Christ, our lives should breathe different than those around us, yes? We see by a different lens. Um, we live by a different word. We walk on a different path. We are called to live not by sight, but by faith. We know this. But here's the purpose for this series. Second, with that, there is a very real challenge, I think, in living by that kind of lifestyle. And here's why. Um, the very idea of living by faith in today's context is suspect. Just in general, right? We live in a day and time where, where faith, trust has entirely eroded. In this cultural moment, skepticism rules. We're not even sure what faith is anymore. In fact, you could point to it every week. I could ask you next Sunday what it was, and I could tell you this Sunday what it was. Think about it. Where did you see faith erode in our culture this week? Presidents and documents? Or how about school boards and our children? Or geez, we can't even get on a flight and wonder if we're gonna make it home or not on time. Faith is, is, is waiting in our culture. We're not sure really what, what that means. And yet God calls us time and time again to live our lives by faith. So the next few months, we're gonna walk through this chapter of Hebrews 11. We're gonna ask the question, how do I swim against that current? In a faithless context, how do I stand firm in that storm? So this morning, we're gonna look at the life of two brothers. You'll know them well, and I want you to see how they choose to either live their lives by faith or go by their own word, their own way. And then we're gonna look at the, the ramifications of that together. So let me invite you now to turn your eyes, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and then we're going to turn to verse 4 together. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God. Amen. So let's just go back to the beginning then. Very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. If you have your Bibles open, I'll invite you to turn there. You can walk through this with me. The first two siblings that ever walked planet earth. In one corner, you know their names, Cain, and in the other was Abel. And we're told that somewhere along the way, verse 3 tells us, in the course of time, these two men had set out to bring their worship to the Lord. And on this peculiar sacred day, as a part of their worship, each brother brings their own offering before God. The firstborn was Cain. And he gathers up a heap of grain from his hard-earned harvest, and he brings this gift up onto the altar with this anticipation full-on of God's acceptance. Nothing happens. Meanwhile, as he's taking this in and trying to figure out what's going on, he sees his brother, Abel, carrying not grain, but the firstborn of his flock. 
And Genesis tells us Abel then sets this animal and all of its fat portions before the Lord and before his older brother. And at first, this is a beautiful picture, right? A farmer and a herdsman side by side. Brothers in worship before the presence of Almighty, but we all know sin had already entered the world and it wasn't gonna be long before sin would have its way. And you'll remember, in God's holiness, he rejects the offering from one son. Meanwhile, with no explanation, he accepts the sacrifice of the other outright. Grain rejected, animal accepted. And since that day, God's people have been all kinds of confused about this story. Like, what in the world just happened? See, because it seems as though to us as we first turn the pages of this story that God played favorites with these two men. Let's just start here. How do you suppose that Cain knew that his offering was rejected and Abel's was received? I imagine maybe it was much like the day later on in the scriptures at the altar of Elijah where this holy fire came down from heaven and burned up the gift. Abel's was gone, right? Ashes. You could see it's licked up by God, accepted with favor if you go with my hypothesis. Meanwhile, Cain's grain sat there untouched. Like a rejected meal at the dinner table that you would work so hard for, he must have been humiliated. In fact, we don't have to guess his reaction. We know exactly how this went over. God's word tells us it was only a matter of time before this surprise turned to anger, anger to fury, and fury to what? Murder. Still to this day, this drama plays out all the time in homes around the world. I can remember growing up, my goal as the younger, younger sibling was to antagonize my brother to the point where I'd just slap him as hard as I could on the shoulder. And then what did you do? You ran for your life, right? Because the younger brother never one-ups the older brother. So God comes to Cain and he tells him, he says, Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to devour you. You have lost your way. And yet, instead of Cain asking God, why did you reject my sacrifice? He chooses the fool's way out. And he kills his own brother instead. Just imagine being Eve for a minute. The, the mother of humanity. The one who raised these two men. Genesis 3.15 tells us that the, the offspring of Eve would one day take this sinful world that they had created and made it right again, Right? And speaking with the serpent, God told the, seed that, God told the serpent that the seed of this woman will crush your head. So of course, Cain is born and, and there was probably hope in her eyes that something would be made right here. Right, what does she say? Chapter four, verse one. I have born a man with the help of the Lord. Perhaps this will be the child who will redeem the sin of the world and make everything right again. And we can go back to the garden and get it right back as we had it. How heartbreaking it is. Cain's not the deliverer. He's the murderer. It begs some questions, right? Like, why wouldn't God just accept both offerings and skip the drama? I mean, any parent knows full well how you play this game. If you pick favorites with the kids, someone's gonna get hurt. I'll bet some of us in this room right now could talk about some deep wound that we carry because someone played favorites either intentionally or inadvertently at some point in our lives and it brought damage 
See, but here's where we should pay close attention, right? Because this story is not about that. If we read this story through that broken lens, through our own sibling baggage or family dynamics, we've misinterpreted this entire lesson. Because hear this, this is important. This is not a story about favorites. What I want us to see this morning is this is a story about faith. And if we think sensibly about these two brothers and the offerings that each of them brought before the Lord, we will find something, I believe, deeply profound about how God expects us then to walk in our own relationship with him. That's what I want us to spend the rest of our time on this morning. Just last year, a woman by the name of Beatrice was placed on hospice. As she came to the end of her life, she had just one wish before she died. Instead of a, a traditional obituary, Beatrice wanted her family to publish what she named her faith resume. The position she was applying for, of course, after 94 years on this earth was obvious. She said, to whom it may concern, dear Lord, please accept my application for eternal life. Below her words, Beatrice began painstakingly listing out all the reasons for her acceptance into the Father's arms. Listen to some of her rationale. She said, was a teacher I poured selflessly into the lives of my students. Countless times I brought godly counsel to those in a difficult place. I volunteered hours, countless hours, making clothing for the poor. I've always been quick to forgive and daily I've chosen joy. Her resume then concluded, Lord, I hope I deserve a place in your heavenly home. You know where to find me. Yours, Beatrice. It's a creative thought, isn't it? Just what are the qualifications by which we find favor with the Lord? What are the requirements that you and I need if we were to put together a resume for eternity? I mean, if you were to come face to face with Almighty right now and he asked you the classic, like, what makes you a qualified candidate? How do you stand out among the rest of the crowd for this position of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven? What would you say? You know, in worship, Cain brings grain. And Abel brings the portions of his flock. Beatrice brings her good works. Is that what God's looking for? The scholars for centuries have debated why God would reject Cain's offering while accepting his brothers. What was it that caused such a distinction between them? I mean, why all the drama just four chapters in to this story. Some say, well, maybe it was the offering itself, right? I mean, the two gifts were quite different. Cain brings his farming to the table. Abel brings the herd. Maybe, maybe God was a carnivore. Maybe he just liked steak or a rack of lamb. Let's think about that though. Why was there a need for sacrifice to begin with? What would be the purpose for an offering to begin with? We know that sin had just entered the world by their parents, right? And what happens? Almost immediately, Adam and Eve realize the shame of their nakedness and they're hiding in the garden, right? Trying to cover it up. And so they take these mere fig leaves to cover their bodies. That doesn't work. So what does God do to cover the guilt of their sin? Do you remember? An animal has to die. Genesis 3.21 tells us that in God's grace, he made for them garments of skins. Which teaches us then, right, that the first way we see God deal with sin in scripture is by the blood of a living being, right? Our sin costs something. 
So it makes sense then that perhaps God's preference, maybe it was an animal over grain. It's possible. Except that as soon as you turn to the book of Leviticus chapter two, you find evidence all over the place, not only of God's encouragement, but his instruction of grain offerings. It's clear that God's completely satisfied with grain. So we should keep digging. Again, why would God choose one and reject the other? Scholars throughout the centuries, they've come up with another hypothesis. Well, maybe God excluded Cain because his brother gave his first fruits, his firstborn animal. Meanwhile, Cain just brought the ordinary stuff, the leftovers. And again, there's biblical evidence for this. Look at this, Proverbs 3, verse 9. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and your first fruits of all of your produce. Now, this could be too, except there's no evidence at all in this point in God's story that he required first fruits of anything as an offering. So for centuries of Jewish history and scholarship, the debate has raged on why. Why would God pick one and reject the other? But then you turn to Hebrews. And Hebrews offers us the exact answer. Look, at, look again at how God's word clarifies us. Here's why. By faith. By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. See, this is not a story about fickle favorites. This is a story about faith. Why did God choose Abel? It's not the offering that pleased God. It's not the presentation or the, the God liked one man or the other. Hebrews tells us it was his heart. The differentiator is that Abel approached the Lord by faith, and through his faith, we're told, he was commended as righteous. I imagine Cain coming to that altar so proud of himself, right? He had worked all year long, planting, cultivating, harvesting that grain. He could have easily saved it for himself for the winter, but instead he brings this gift to the altar, and certainly he was waiting for an attaboy. And yet there's one problem. He's not playing by God's rules. He's playing by his own rules. And even though Cain goes through all the motions of worship, the Lord sees what's inside and his gift lacks faith. You know, there's plenty of examples in God's word where he speaks to this error. Look at this in Matthew 15, eight. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. In the book of Isaiah, God's people are literally worshiping idols. They'd fallen away from authentic worship. And Isaiah calls them out with this prayer. He says, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We fade like a leaf and our inequities like the wind carry us away. Let's just pull out that eternal resume one more time. Again, by what qualifications do you expect to get the position? What is it that you plan to bring to God that you are confident he will see as pleasing and good in his sight? This is a life-changing question, right? Because in all honesty, if, if we were keeping with the theme of this story, the cover letter, at least of my resume, should probably read a bit different. I've written it out for you. Here, here's what it might sound like. Dear God, despite all that I've done in this life to try to please you, I know it's fallen short. What I'd love to do is go over all my good deeds and merit, and yet I know that even the best of what I've done is often tainted with selfish intention and even sinful desire. 
So I'm not sure the resume is going to do. Lord, I just ask that you look at my references. Right? It's not what I've done that assures favor before the Lord. It's not the gift that I bring or how good it looks to others. God's favor is about faith. And there is only one person on that list who can vouch for my entrance. There's only one name by which I am saved. There's only one offering by which my sins have been atoned for. And when we shrink back from thinking that somehow I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna earn my way back into God's graces, we have stepped into dangerous ground because it is by faith alone that Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. See, but here's the challenge. We're not wired that way. That's not the way that the world around us operates. This is a foreign concept, even within the church. Recent survey asked the question of Christians nationwide, how are you saved? One third said by works, one third said by a combination of works and faith, and only one third said by faith alone. Two-thirds of our Christian brothers and sisters are living in heresy, dangerous heresy. See, of course, you can understand how we got here, right? To live by that kind of grace is counter to everything that we know, everything that makes this world goes round. Works is the beat by which our world drums. You want a grade? Earn it. You want that raise? Work a few more hours. You want in the club? You better show me the money. And when you fail, you better believe you're canceled. We just, walk this out with me. Let me dig in. We just spent the entire last month of December, as we do every year, singing with our children about this mysterious man in a red suit. And what does he do for a living? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's gonna find out who's naughty or nice. You better not pout and you better not cry. Better not shout. I'm telling you why. Santa will ruin your Christmas morning, kids. <laughs> it's such an easy parenting tactic. I mean, it's cheating, right? As the emotions run high and you get closer and closer to Christmas, you just temper it with the fat man in the red suit. <laughs> and now my girls tell me we have elves on the shelves watching your every move. Did you know that? What, what happens? What does this teach? It's holiday terror, right? Did I make it? A am I good enough? Am I getting cold this year? See, and before we know it, we've been conditioned, just like Cain, to believe that somehow by my merit or lack thereof, by the quality of my gift or the creativity of my offering, that's how I'll please God. And hopefully he'll see me as good enough because I know at least I'm better than the guy next to me in the pew. Don't look to your left or right. See, but the problem is you're playing by a different game. Our holiness will never match the holiness of God. There is not one who is righteous. There is not one who understands. There is no one who fully sees God, Romans 3 tells us. Reminds me of the caution Jesus offers in Matthew 7, 22. He says, many will say to me, Lord, did we, did we not prophesy in your name and your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? Then I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me. 
See, Cain brings his hard-earned grain, hoping that God will look upon his eternal resume with favor. But there's one glaring problem. He's left his faith behind. Author and pastor Brian Chapel once wrote a story about a king who from his palace window saw one of his own children gathering up flowers in a nearby field. And as he watched her making this bouquet, he noticed along the way she would grab these weeds and these thorns and throw them in. And he knew it was only a matter of time before she would bring this gift as she normally did up to the dinner table. But there was company coming, so he couldn't have weeds for his guests. So he gave this mission to his eldest son. He said, I want you to go in the, the kingly garden. I want you to pick all the best flowers that grow there. And when your sibling comes with her gift, I want you to remove all the thorns and thistles and cover that bouquet with kingly flowers just as I've grown. So the son did just that. Little girl brought up her gift to the king's door and the son met her, removed all the imperfections, covered the bouquet of weeds and barbs with kingly royal flowers, wrapped it in a royal ribbon. And it was then only by the son's hand that the daughter's gift was acceptable for his table. See, that's how our faith operates. Ephesians says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, the danger of resting, I think, in anything but faith, when it comes to our salvation, is that you and I, we will swing widely into one of two dangerous platforms in this life. We will either fall into this arrogant, prideful, false performance that says, I'm on top. I'm the righteous one. I'm the holy one. Or conversely, we will be entirely defeated in despair by the reality that we have a gift that will never add up. But here's what God does with our faith, right? He puts it right in between those two. Not pride, not despair, neither of which is a healthy way to live. But instead, he calls on us with humble trust and reliance to put our faith in the one who is enough. And as we live by that manner of faith, we become witnesses not of what I've done with my life, but eventually we begin speaking about what God has done. Hebrews 11.4 tells us this morning that it's through Abel's faith, though he died, he still speaks. What does he speak to? He speaks of Jesus Christ. This is crazy to me. Even though Abel had never met the guy, his faith speaks to the one, Hebrews tells us later, whose sprinkled blood gives a better word than Abel's offering ever could. By the blood and that blood alone, we are forgiven, set free, and now made to live for him. Now, let me make this really practical. Here's how I want to wrap up. Let me just explain what I think that might look like as we walk out those doors today. The next time you look in the mirror and you think to yourself, man, I am never going to add up. I am not good enough. I failed my family again. The Bible teaches us that by faith in Christ, you are already called holy. Therefore, be holy. Forget the resume. Your citizenship has already been granted. Get back up and serve the Lord. Conversely, the next time you begin thinking you're on top, 
You've arrived because of something you've done or said. Maybe you're in conflict and you are confident you are the one in the right. Remember this, all have fallen short. There is no one who is righteous, not one. It is only by grace and faith that we have been saved. See, and it's by that humble confidence now that we're called to live, not boasting in what I've done, but what he has done for me. And hear this, as we do that, that is how we witness our faith to a world that finds our faith unbelievable. That faith will speak for itself, not just now, but for eternity. Let me ask God to help us do that this week. Will you pray with me? God, so often we, um, we slip into this, this pattern in our lives where we believe by the works of our own hands that we could earn it, that we could earn our way into your favor or salvation. And so God, we do all these great things for you and yet we confess often our motivations are mixed. Lord, while you've called us to live lives of gratitude, to to live out of works of thanksgiving, Lord, we often slip into trying to make up, trying to make better. So Lord, we, we return to you. We fix our eyes back on Jesus this morning. We ask that you would help us to live by faith, Lord, and that our faith would be seen. God, that so that even the best of our works would shine so bright that it, it's not us, Lord, but it's you. God, if we're gonna boast, would you help us to boast in our weakness? And if we're gonna praise, would you help us to praise in your glory? Give us that mindset this week. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.